Thank you for listening to this edition of the ESG podcast, where the topic under discussion is all about social impact. Today, we're joined by Rachel Lindley, who since 2012 has worked for Five Talents, an international charity that works in East Africa to help people escape from poverty by equipping them with business startup training, numeracy skills, and the practical support they need to start and run their own business. Since 2018, Rachel has been Five Talents Chief Executive. So welcome, Rachel, and thank you very much for joining us today. Let's start with some basics. Number one, why are you called Five Talents? Tell us a little bit more about what Five Talents does and the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve. Great. Well, the best way I can tell you what Five Talents does is by telling you the story of one of our members. Um, So let me tell you about Lena. Lena lives in Aru in DR Congo. Uh, Like most of her fellow countrymen and women, she's lived through uh, decades of civil war. Uh, She's lived through lots of hardship. She's lived through Ebola. She's lived through coronavirus. Uh, She's never been to school. She doesn't know how old she is. She's trying to bring up seven children, uh, four girls and three boys. Um, And until last year, she was really struggling to make ends meet by selling peanuts, literally selling peanuts. She would buy one bag per week and she would go to the local town and sell them in the market for a very small profit. Last year, Lena came across a Five Talents group, uh, which was offering her literacy skills, learning how to read and write and count, and then the chance to join a savings group to save some money to access a small loan and to get some business skills training. Lena joined the group along with 20 or so other women. She learnt with them how to read and write and count, and she said you know, already that was transformational because she used to go to the market and she didn't know if she was making any profit. She didn't know if people were cheating her because she couldn't count the money. But now uh, she could start to count the money and she could help her children with their homework and she could really feel like she she belonged in the community. She could read the instructions on medicine, all sorts of social impacts that you might not immediately associate with being able to read and write um, alongside the numeracy of being able to count her money. So after Lena's group had all learned how to read and write, they graduated with the help of a a five talents trainer to become a savings group. So that meant they would save the little money they had week by week, month by month in a a box kept in their community. And when there was enough money in the box, they started making loans to one another, all the while helped by training from Five Talents in financial literacy and business skills. And Lena took a loan from her group and she invested it in buying five bags of peanuts instead of the one she was buying before. And she'd learned from the business skills training, she didn't need to spend money on public transport to go to the market. Instead, she could sell the nuts door to door in the local communities. So that's what she did. And she made so much more profit from that, uh, that she was able to not only repay the loan, but also pay for all her children to go to school. Even the eldest, who was uh, he'd outgrown secondary school, but he'd never completed. So he, he went back to school. She also built, bought some solar panels to put on the roof of their home so that she could provide light in the evening so the children could study. And she's in the process of buying some bricks so she can build a permanent home for them. So out of, out of this, um, this journey of, of literacy and numeracy and then savings groups, there's the financial impact. She has some money now. So when there's a crisis, she has some money. But it's the social impacts that are really exciting. And the fact that all of her children can go to school, that she can, she can read the instructions on medicine, she can afford medicine, and she can put solar panels in for electricity, she can build a better home. So that's what we do, and those are the, the impacts we, we hope to see through all of our programmes. Where does the name come from? You asked me that as well. So the name comes from the parable uh, in the Bible, the parable of the talents. I don't know if you know the story, but uh, a master goes on a journey and he leaves uh, three servants to look after his, his business affairs for him, if you like. Uh, they're each given a number of talents. Talents was a, a measure of money. 
So one is given one talent, one is given two talents, and one is given five talents. And the one who has five talents invests it and makes five more. The one who has two invests those and makes two more. But the one who has one talent uh, buries them and, and doesn't use them. Uh, so the moral of the story basically is um, use the talents that you have, use them and multiply them, don't, don't bury them. So we were founded by uh, the Anglican Church about 20 years ago, and we work through the church. And the reason for that is quite simply, there's a church in every community. You can go to a remote village in DR Congo. There might be no school, no hospital, no road, but there will still be a church. So it gives us a, a way to reach out to the, to the most remote and vulnerable communities. Uh, but of course, we, we work with people of all faiths and non. There's no discrimination. There's no proselytizing. Um, anybody is welcome to join the groups. Wow, I'm still reeling about that story about Lena. Let's be specific then about the kinds of money and sums involved. What do you mean by microfinance? What sort of sizes of money does a business typically need to start a viable, sustainable business? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess the first thing I need to explain is that when we talk about microfinance at Five Talents, we're referring to what's called savings-led microfinance rather than credit-led microfinance. And the difference is that with credit-led microfinance, the loan capital that people are borrowing comes from an external agent like, like Five Talents. Uh, so we used to do that. In fact, we used to provide the loan capital for groups to lend to one another. But what we now do is solely what we call savings-led microfinance. And that's where uh, the groups provide their own capital. So the money that they borrow is their, their very own savings. Like Lena and her group, the money that Lena borrowed came from the group's own savings. And we found that's so much better for, for three main reasons. One is that it's, it's much more empowering. Communities know that they've saved their own money. Um, it's their own money that they're lending to one another. It's nobody else's. And that in turn means they make much better credit decisions uh, because they've worked so hard to save this money. They're only going to lend it to someone who they know is going to invest it well. We found it was a much more scalable model. So with the old model, the loan, uh, the credit-led model, Every time a new member wanted to join the programme, we as Five Talents had to find new loan capital. Whereas in this savings-led model, every time a new member joins the programme, they come with their own capacity to save. So it's much more scalable. And then it's also much more sustainable. So our aim as Five Talents is to support a project for maybe three to five years, give the group lots and lots of training so it can self-manage, but then leave them to it. And of course, if, if you're making the loans from your own five talents pocket, you have to be there all the time to do all the follow up, all the recording and all that kind of thing. Whereas in this model, because the communities are saving and borrowing their own money, once they're trained, they can carry on operating and we can go off somewhere else. Um, so for us, it's all about the savings led microfinance. And that's relevant because the, the sums of money that people can borrow are therefore determined by how much they're saving but the group makes all the decisions because it's their money. So when Lena wanted to take her loan, her loan was about 25 pounds. Uh, that was all she needed. Uh, but the group decided that was a good amount for her. They knew she could repay. They could afford to make that loan to her and a couple of other loans to people in the group who also wanted to borrow. So the loans can be anything from maybe 10 pounds up to about 200 pounds. You know, it could be a very small loan just to diversify or stock up a little bit, or it could be buying an asset like a, a cow or a sewing machine. And so they do vary, but it's all determined by what the group decides. I understand you work with partner organisations to set up and deliver these projects. How, how do you choose the partners? So we, we wait to be invited, actually. That's another core part of our, our operating model. We don't want to be uh, one of those NGOs that imposes what we do in a place where it's not wanted. We have a, a story, actually, which I might tell you, uh, which the Archbishop of Kenya told us. He'd been to visit a community in Western Kenya 
where uh, the practice was um, wild defecation. So you can imagine that's not good for the water sources, it's not good for the people uh, going out into the bush at night. So an NGO had built this community a lovely shiny new latrine. But the Archbishop noticed as he's being shown around the village, he noticed that there was no path going to the door of the latrine. There's normally paths crisscrossing the whole village, going to the market, to neighbours' houses, to the church, to the mosque. So he was really struck by the fact there was no path going to the door of this latrine. So he said to one of the elders, why, why is there no path? And the elder said, honestly, your grace, we saved this latrine for visiting dignitaries like you. For because it's right on the, on the edge of our village, it's in full view of the whole village. If any of us went down a path to that door, everyone would know what we were going to do. And for us, that's shameful. So we still go to the bush at night. So it just shows that so many well-intentioned projects fail uh, and if the community are not consulted, if only they'd ask the community, where do you want us to build this latrine? So the, the beauty of microfinance is that it's all about communities solving their own problems in their own way, deciding what's right for them. And a key part of that is making sure they actually want the project. So we, we only go where we're, where we're invited to go and start a project. And now, then- if I, was gonna say, I was gonna say that story, you just made me think that it epitomizes what we mean by the S of ESG in terms of ensuring that it's whatever you're, whatever you're doing is of value to the stakeholders. And, yeah. and, and that I suppose raises the next question. Um, relating to that, apart from conventional accounting metrics, how do you measure the success of your projects, particularly these social impacts, which are almost more important to the people and the communities with which you work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's easy to measure the financial metrics. It's easy for us to count how much there is in savings loans and what the repayment rates are. Um, and those are important and they are good pro proxies. You know, if someone has accrued savings over a whole year, um, that's a great proxy for them being much more resilient when there is a crisis, they've got something to fall back on. So th those metrics are really important. But we also want to measure um, outcomes as well as outputs, if you like. We want to measure, you know, can somebody actually cope in a crisis? Can they afford to buy a medicine? Are, are women more involved in decision making or leadership roles now? Are more children going to school like, like Layla's children? It's those impacts that I think are, are truly exciting. Um, and the way to measure those is by, I think, working with the community to find out what's important to them. So when we start the project, uh, we'll be wanting to ask, you know, what, what are the challenges in this area? How do you as a community want to tackle them? And then we can measure success on, on your terms, not on, not on our terms, because you're the people doing it. So you're the ones who should get to say whether it's been a success or not. And um, they call it participatory monitoring and evaluation rather than extractive monitoring and evaluation. I've not heard that phrase before. That's uh, hmm. That's giving me food for thought. Um, do you personally have any opportunities to visit these projects? In the, well, I think did you say there were fourteen countries that you operate in, or is your work mostly done in from the UK? So, I mean, usually I would visit two or three times a year. Of course, I've been anywhere since um, January twenty twenty. Uh, but the, the beauty of our model is that it's all all the real work, all the actual training of the saving, savings groups is done by local partners, by people from the community themselves. So I don't need to go. You know, it's great to go for some monitoring and evaluation and auditing. And we often take donors to visit the work as well, because that's a great way for them to really understand how it works, but we don't need to. So the work can continue through, through the local partners that we have. Now, I was going to ask you a question. I think you might've answered it, but I'm going to ask it again. What have you learned most um, since Five Talents started? And, and you're not allowed to use the latrine example. 
<laughs> fair enough fair enough well I guess one of my answers would be about how the savings led approach to microfinance is so much more um, successful really so much more impactful uh, I think what we've learned is that you know, we thought we were providing financial services um, with some skills training we're not we're providing people we're helping people discover their own agency basically we're helping them figure out how to solve their own problems in their own way in their own communities so our role is to, to facilitate them to do that and then get out of the way and leave them to it. So, you know, that's been a key learning. Um, and related to that, I guess, is that it's all about the people. People are the biggest asset, both in the UK. You know, our team here is wonderful. There's only six of us um, and they're all such a wonderful, committed team. Uh, but our partners in Eastern Africa, those who are leading the projects, those who are doing the training, you know, those who are spending three hours on a motorbike to go out to a village and, and deliver some training to a community there, um, they are the big make or break factor of our projects um, and the communities themselves, the members themselves, those who are, are learning how to save for the first time, who are investing in businesses, you know, who are taking ownership of their own communities problems. You know, without them, there wouldn't be any projects. It's, it's really not about the money. It's about the people. Now, I, I was I, I did wonder when I, I invited you on whether, in fact, we would learn a little bit more about how ESG operates. But I think. There are some themes that have come out from what you've said in terms of the importance of engaging with stakeholders and making sure that it's the stakeholders that make the decisions that affect them um, most immediately. It sounds obvious, but it doesn't happen very often. And I, I'm trying to bring that to bear here in the UK when um, corporations are now having to produce an ESG report. And, and what's, what's happening is whilst most of these corporations haven't done an ESG report um, before because it's relatively new as a sector. Um, the ones that have begun that process are actually able to measure the metrics, um, you know, the progress that they've made year on year. And I've, I, I've, I've just come away from another meeting where it was said, and I think quite appropriately, that if somebody has an ESG strategy, well, all organisations should have an ESG strategy. The question is, you know, how, how embedded is it and, and what scale um, is it within the organization? But I think you always have to start from somewhere um, rather than just saying, well, we need to fix all the problems immediately. Um, and I think you, you've underlined the fact that actually not all the problems um, in the world will be fixed just because we say they have to be by, say, take climate change by, you know, 2050. Um, but we need to begin from somewhere. And yours is an example, I think, of of how little, um, little gestures um, can 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 magnify and, and make a big difference and, and it was on that that note I was going to ask you my probably we're looking at time we'd probably make this the last question sadly um all charities are looking for sponsors and supporters this we know um how's the pandemic affected your fundraising and and more importantly what can anyone listening to this do um to help you if they wanted to get involved Thank you. We are, we're really fortunate that income actually held up for us last year. In fact, we had a, a record year of fundraising, which is not what I was predicting when I was doing some scenario planning about 12 months ago. But I think because we don't, we don't rely on government funding, we don't have any charity shops, we don't rely on big events like um, London Marathon. What we do rely on is lots of uh, individual supporters, generous individuals who, who remain loyal to us. Uh, and in some ways, it's actually been easier for us to connect with them via Zoom. Uh, we've had people joining our online events from Exeter and Edinburgh where they wouldn't have been able to join something in London. And um, so we are we are really fortunate that fundraising did help hold up last year. Uh, and that's great because we're seeing increased demand for our programmes. 
Um, what I do think, though, and where I'll come to your next question of what people can do, what I do think has been a struggle is for us to meet new supporters in this time. So it has been easier to engage existing supporters, but we've had far fewer opportunities to get out there and meet new supporters. So anybody listening to this who, who likes what we do, please look us up and, and you know, give me a call. Let's have a conversation and I'll tell you more about it. And tell other people about us. If you know a, a business network who might be looking for a charity partner, a, a small but growing charity, uh, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Now, anybody who wants to, to start a journey um, to travel with us, we find as a small charity, we're not a household name. We often can't compete for a company's charity partner scheme, um, but our work has a huge impact on the ground and we offer you the chance to, to see it firsthand and really engage with it. So if that appeals to anybody listening, please do drop us a line. Now, it's been absolutely fantastic listening to you. Um, thank you for the openness and frankness about the challenges you face. Um, what is that website URL? Just give it to us again. It is five talents, uh, all in letters, not numbers. So five talents.org.uk. Great. Okay. So um, there you go. If anybody wants to find out more about five talents, that's the website address. Um, do please check it out um, on the website and social media channels. And more importantly, dear listener, if you're not doing so already, do please subscribe to the ESG Foundation's page on LinkedIn. Um, you can find us on Twitter. And also we have an ESG Foundation podcast channel on YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So you can hear the range of ESG subjects that we've covered. They vary from um, ES and G, as you might anticipate. But for this podcast, all I remains me to say is thank you very much for listening. And, and Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Clive. It's been a pleasure.